Hello, and welcome to Design is Everywhere, the new weekly podcast from the Design Museum. It's Thursday, August 13th, 2020. I'm Sam Aquilano, the founder and executive director of the Design Museum, and I'm joined by Liz Pollack, our amazing vice president. Hello, Liz. Hi, Sam. This week, we have an important topic to discuss. Across the nation, parents and guardians are having to decide whether to send their children back to school amid the COVID-19 pandemic. The truth is some folks won't have a choice. So today we'll explore how design can play a role in creating a safer return to school this year. We'll have an awesome guest co-host to help us dig into this. Karina Ruiz is a principal at Brick Architecture and has a lot of experience designing schools. And we'll have a special guest, Kyle Lair. He's the Assistant Superintendent of Operations at Oregon City Public Schools. As you can probably imagine, Kyle and his team are working to figure this all out right now. Plus, as always, we'll each share our weekly dose of good design. But first, Liz, what's on the docket at the Design Museum? Yeah, so Design Night Live is just about a month away, and we can't wait to celebrate with all of you. We're going to be enjoying all sorts of fun entertainment and design, from mixology to networking, food demonstrations to inspiring keynotes. It's going to be a night to remember. I'm also excited to share that the next issue of Design Museum Magazine is coming out very soon. The theme for the next issue is workplace innovation. And with all the changes happening in home and where we work, I know that we're going to get a lot out of these articles and insights in this issue. Whether it's how we best collaborate remotely, how to evolve your career, or how the in-person work will change, there's content in this issue covering a broad range of workplace design issues. So stay tuned, and if you're not a member or subscriber, be sure to visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and sign up to make sure you get this next issue. Yeah, I'm really excited about this issue. There's a lot of great insights. I mean, we're all struggling and adapting, and I think um, we've put together a really... um, relevant and appropriate Design Museum magazine for uh, for this issue. Yeah, looking forward to it. Now onto this week's topic. It feels like the nation is in a collective dilemma on whether to send kids back to school this fall. The coronavirus pandemic rages on and feels just as dangerous as ever. And there's a risk for our young people and there's also a risk for teachers and staff as well. So then there's a danger of children who mess out on school, right? Research shows there are lifelong impacts for missing out on education. Plus, some kids and families rely on schools for food, for childcare, especially while parents are going back to work. It's also an equity issue where wealthy families can afford private tutors or high-end remote learning opportunities and poorer families cannot. They may have no choice but to send their children to school. It basically feels like an impossible situation that we are just careening towards. Uh, You know, we're not here, I don't think, to debate, you know, whether schools should open, but maybe we'll get into that. Because like I said, many people, they won't have a choice. Uh, So today we're going to be talking about how can we use design to create safer environments for learning for youth while also protecting the children, families, teachers, staff, etc., Uh, And to discuss this, we have a very special guest co-host. Karina Ruiz has over 20 years of experience and has managed over $1 billion in educational projects throughout her career. Her belief that education shapes the future of this world drives her work to ensure that teaching and learning objectives remain the team's focus throughout each project. She's a principal at Brick Architecture. Karina, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to the discussion. Yeah. Oh, we're super happy to have you. Maybe we could start at at a high level here. And I wonder if you could share, you're such an expert in designing these learning environments. 
what's your process? How do you translate educational objectives into the built environment? Um, yeah, I, I mean, to me, it all comes down to um, the, the conversations that you have, right, that that really become the lens through which you see and, and identify the problem. And then also the lens through which you start to create solutions for those pro- for those problems. Um, oftentimes in architecture, um, and I don't think educational architecture is any different, we are asked, we are approached with a design brief design a middle school, design elementary school, do this addition. And one approach that, that we've taken at Brick is um, to really kind of dig deeper and, and probe, is that the right problem to solve, right? Um, mm. And oftentimes that has led us to a very different place um, in terms of an outcome, because oftentimes what people think they need, if you start asking deeper questions it starts to become apparent that no, they don't necessarily need a new elementary school. What they need to do is kind of rethink capacity at all levels. And, you know, in, in one case, it resulted actually in a new high school that then provided capacity at all of the other um, levels in the district. And I think at the end of the day, that's what the design process enables us to do is to start backwards, right, um, with without focusing on, okay, we've got this problem now, let's ideate a solution, but rather let's think deeply about whether that's the right problem to solve and who are the end users and what are their experiences telling us about what we need to be thinking about. Yeah. What's your mechanism for finding those and listening? Is it community events? Like how do what, where do you actually do do that thing? Yeah, um, it, it varies from district to district. I think in almost all cases, we start with um, a group of of uh, internal and external stakeholders, but who are you know kind of um, directly connected to the district in some way. Um, so whether it's parents, um, community partners, business in an in industry in the in the district, students, obviously administrators. Um, that's who you usually start with. But then you have to broaden that conversation and you broaden it, um, depending on the project that you're you're looking at, you broaden it to include larger aspects of the community writ large. You know, you dig deep into the student engagement piece, which, um, you know, I think we have found when we've done that with um, sort of an affinity to vision, um, then we've ended up in a better place, right? Because I think we often, as adults, um, sell children short in terms of what they can contribute to design. Um, and, you know, one of the best projects I've ever been a part of came as a result of work that we did with the fifth grade student who said, I want to be the captain of my own learning. I, I think, quite frankly, you know, in the context of what we're looking at today, the world we're looking at today, we have a lot of work to do. Because often mm-hmm. the voices in the, that room aren't the voices of the most underserved by the buildings and the, the communities we're designing for. And so um, that's some of the work that we've been doing at Brick is to really dig deep into what that looks like and design intentionality to, um, to those experiences, to bring those voices to bear. Yeah, that's awesome. So important. Speaking of those voices, um, you're embedded in this, and I'm wondering what you're hearing from your clients, like school administrators, but also parents about this new school year coming up. I mean, it's a doozy. It is. Um, you know, it's, it's it's a bit of a hot mess, honestly. Um, it yeah. is. And, and it's it's 
it is taxing everyone, right? This is a major stressor for the system. It's a major stressor for the people in the system, for students, for families. Um, and I think a lot of that stress comes from the uncertainty, right? Um, the mm -hmm. Actually, in about 45 minutes, the governor of Oregon will be, you know, doing another press conference around further guidance for what what's going to happen in in Oregon. I don't think um, we're in a state where the federal where the government here in Oregon will say this is exactly what's going to happen at every school, right? Leaving it to the schools, but providing guidance. We're seeing a lot of our local schools um, already starting to to make the decision to go 100% online until November 10th, which seems like a relatively random date, but I'm sure there's magic behind it. And then others that have already published plans of, you know, offering options for families that are either, you know, 100% online or some version of hybrid. Um, but then, you know, really thinking about how do you address sort of that equity gap that we have, right, where yeah. there are kids for whom learning at home is not a good option for them. And so, and, and who quite frankly, in some cases need special services that can't be provided at home. And so how do you provide equitable outcomes for those kids and not continue to increase an achievement gap that was already too big to begin with? Right. Right. There's already a lot of problems in our system. And then this is just really accentuating them. The optimist in me also thinks that there is no greater opportunity to be a catalyst for change than what we're in, right? We're experiencing, yeah, quite frankly, totally. the biggest disruption to education, certainly in my lifetime and maybe in, in many other lifetimes. And if we don't come out of this better and having done the deep work to really examine what are the what 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 does school mean? What do we need it to mean? And tend to that and ensure that we are meeting the needs of all learners where they are. Um, I think we we will have missed an opportunity that was that's not going to come along again in a long time. You know, I'm I'm thinking about if we do indeed, you know, need to send our, the kids back to school this fall. Um, what should that look like? Like, are there design changes to the buildings themselves that we can make to make it safer? And you know, are you engaged in any projects that are are currently looking at kind of retrofitting their space? Yeah, um, you know, we're we're helping out our clients. You know, we've got new schools that are opening up, you know, that um we've we've done great furniture plans for and have been working <laughs> on them for four and a half years and now, you know, we're opening up or potential of at, at some point opening up in, in this pandemic, um, post pandemic um world. You know, one of the challenges that, that I see moving forward that we're trying to um push against is this concept of kids in six foot bubbles, all facing the same direction and never leaving that classroom, right? I mean, that that oh, has yeah. been the history of education, kind of the assembly line education that we've had for a long time. And we have done great work. I should say the educators that we work with have done the really hard work to push away from that and to move to, you know, collaborative models and teams and, and all of these things that we know prepare kids better for the workforce that they're going to enter, for the world that we're living in. And so one of the things that we've been doing is trying to say, okay, how can you still safely keep people six feet apart, but take what is a cohort of, you know, maybe 16 kids in a classroom or 20 kids in a classroom um, in a hybrid model and 
break those up even further into teams of four or five kids that can be in a circle or some sort of, you know, Socratic seminar kind of, kind of, um, of grouping while still keeping them safe, keeping them six feet apart. Um, but the last thing I want to see us do is, um, bring kids back and force them to stay in one spot, um, and all learn from the front of the room. Like that just seems like we're, we'll be going backwards educationally. Um, but you know, it's a, it's a challenge because you are at once trying to navigate what you know to be right educationally with doing no harm and keeping kids safe. Right. And both of those are very noble, um, goals, but they do tend to sometimes work at cross purposes. And so what we've been trying to do is find that middle ground where you can do both, um, and, and be specific about the challenge you're trying to solve. Yeah. Yeah, I love how you you talk about it as an opportunity because I see this in a bunch of aspects where there's a crisis and you kind of retreat back to, like you said, in rows, you never leave your desk. But this is an opportunity to like change that. And I wonder whether, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on like what that changes because you see things like this blended in-person and virtual components. Like, are you seeing any examples like out there in the world that are like, doing it right or preparing to do it right? You know, I wouldn't want to be a district superintendent right now if I think if you paid me all the money in the world, because there's just so <laughs> much coming at them. Um, but districts that are really taking the call to think about everything that they're doing differently, um, I think are, are going to be in a good place because it will then allow them to really kind of focus on um what needs to happen in that one-on-one -on -one time, the in-person time, and what can happen out, you know, asynchronous outside of that. And I think school districts that are doing it right, schools that are thinking about it in the correct way, are focusing on the social emotional part and ensuring that kids are okay, that they're getting the connection that they need, that they're getting the support that they need. You know, never have we um, focused so much on, on, you know, our social emotional needs and sort of Maslow, right? And ensuring <laughs> yeah. that we are really dealing with the base of the of the pyramid and quite frankly dealing with it and and centering the voices of those for whom that pyramid has been upside down for a long time. What can we be doing? What partnerships can we bring to the table? What was a CTE program, a career technical education program that lived in a in a school and say, all right, you know, you guys have an architecture firm that is sitting empty, right? Does that right. mean we can, you know, engage you to have architectural classes there? And what does that look like? So I think um, it is at once the most daunting thing that I think any <laughs> administrator has probably ever <laughs> dealt with. But my hope is um, that that we aren't in a rush to solve a problem and in doing so, solve the wrong problem. Yeah. You know, I think um, probably because it's the summer right now, I keep thinking, oh, what about just having outdoor classrooms? Right? Like, is that the solution? Which obviously doesn't work when it snows. Um, but what about <laughs> what about school outside? And is that something, you know, that's being talked about? 
for sure. Um, actually, I was just on a call earlier today. Um, a friend of mine is like, you know what? I'm not waiting. I'm going to design my own outdoor school. <laughs> she um, amazing and and you know wanting to to bounce ideas off of me and and. I certainly think that school districts are, are thinking about that, right? Not just outdoor school in the sort of traditional kind of be in the forest words, but what are some outdoor spaces, covered play areas where you can safely have kids congregate? But as I'm having these conversations and listening to these, to these well-intentioned and certainly understandable response of like, I want to create these learning pods, I want to go out and do this, you know, outdoor school um, just kind of checking the privilege that comes along with that because, and ensuring that when you're doing that, you are also inviting those for whom those opportunities don't normally come. Right. So in the conversation mm -hmm. that, that I was having with her, I was like, okay, so if we start with a cohort of 10 kids, how many of those can we scholarship, you know, and what does that funding structure look like then for the rest of them? So, you know, I'm thinking about families, because they're such, you know, they're the core of this whole thing. Um, is there anything that families can do to redesign their educational experience for their children, you know, or their redesign their school? Like, what is that? You know, I'm a believer in, in the, the third teacher, meaning, you know, you have your, your standard educator, your first educator is your family. I think in most cases, if we're lucky enough to have that experience, and then the third is the environment. And so if you really kind of think about those we all of us as creators of environments as as um sort of and being in families have a role to play in the design of the education not only of our kids but quite frankly of the community at large right and i mm -hmm. think that um i think there are things that people can do in terms of finding out what their kids interest is and again trying to you know, move us towards learning that is applied that is impactful and that um, especially now can have um, sort of larger societal goals, right, in mind. Um, and so I think it comes down to that same process of really doing the empathy work to examine your kids and what is it that you want for them, what is it that they want. Um, invite them to be partners with you in designing what their co-creators, co-designers with you um, to, to imagine what that experience will be. That's why I'm excited to talk to Kyle, because I think we um, in the work that we've done with with him, we have been able to um, to really co-design alongside students. And the result is incredibly different. Yeah. Great stuff. Thank you so much, Karina. Yeah, thank you. Listeners, check out Brick Architecture to learn more about Karina and her team's work designing, planning, and facilitating impactful design. Visit brick-arch.com. That's B-R-I-C-A-R-C-H.com. Karina, please stay with us, and we'll bring Kyle from Oregon City Public Schools into this conversation. If you like Design is Everywhere, you'll love our upcoming special event, Design Night Live. Join us on September 19th at 8 p.m. Eastern for Design Night Live, a Saturday night filled with design sketches, games, prizes, familiar faces, a silent auction, and more. During this interactive virtual event, attendees from all over will come together to celebrate design, community, and innovation. We'll be sharing the vision and impact of Design Museum Everywhere and hear from designers from around the world about the designs they can't live without. Join Design Museum on September 19th for a night filled with inspiring company, hands-on demonstrations, and incredible prizes. 
Tickets are just $60 and they include a year-long membership. Plus, Design Museum members attend for free. Get your tickets today at designnightlive.org. We're back and we're joined by a special guest. Kyle Lair has 20 years of experience as a teacher, coach, principal, and now is Oregon City School District's Assistant Superintendent of Operations. Kyle is right on the ground, so to speak, in the effort to figure out how to best serve the needs of kids and families during this unprecedented time. Kyle, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thank you. Um, so I know you and Karina have worked together a lot and we heard a little bit about her process uh, in our first segment, but I wonder if you could share with us a bit of how you've worked with her and other designers and architects in the past to generate great spaces for kids to learn. I think what I've appreciated about uh, Karina and Brick is that they they do use design thinking in their um, as kind of a guide for how it is that we get to that space. And so um, I think where we really align in that, not only as a, a district with with Brick, is that we we want to hear from those that we serve. And so we take, we've taken a lot of time in the different things that we've done and the different processes that we've had to include uh, not only, you know, your typical stakeholders that are involved in a lot of those committees uh, and the committee work that happens when you design a school or build a school, but also most importantly, students. Um, so students were heavily involved in this portion of it and actually were even involved in going out to other students, uh, their peers and getting their feedback. And that, that drove a lot of the design in this, um, in this, the new buildings that we're putting into place um, coming up here uh, next year. How did you actually do that? Like, what did that program look like to connect with students and like give them some, like empower them to be part of the process? I think it took intentional planning. And I think that we take that for granted, right? I mean, there were so many meetings where we laid out even quite frankly, before we started thinking about who was going to be in the room, what did we want that room to look like? What questions did we want them to, to challenge themselves with? And we knew that in the project, we were going to be inhabiting the intersection of changing pedagogy and moving um, education forward, and then having architecture that supported that. So it was kind of this really, and in our meetings, were intentionally planned that way. We'd have these three-hour workshops and we'd typically spend an hour and a half talking about education and teaching and learning and creating aspirations for where we wanted to be culturally, educationally in the schools. And we as designers helped the district shape those conversations. And then we'd spend the other half hour or hour and a half talking about the design of space and place to support that. Mm. And the physical layout and the educators and the administrators in the room helped us design what those conversations would look like. So it was just a real kind of seamless flow of ideas that then once we brought the students on board, first of all, they just took it and ran with it. Like it wasn't, even, yeah, it was like, they just, they just took it and ran. Um, but I think it allowed us to, um, to set up a structure in which we knew that their voices wouldn't be tokenized, right? That it was, there was an authenticity and a courage exhibited by the district to say, we're all in and where they lead us, we're going to follow. Yeah. And I'd, I'd add to that, you know, creating a very intentional planning, but I'd also say a ton of flexibility through the process. So part of what I experienced through that process was that we, 
while we were intentionally planning along the way, as we learned and as we listened to those voices, that changed our plan. When you don't have that that really laid out of what, what teaching learning is going to look like in the future, you have to spend some time digging into that. And so doing that at the same time as we're working with Brick um, to kind of get an idea of what, what we're going to design for buildings was, I know, a significant challenge for all of us. And just the level of flexibility uh, that Brick had with us to allow that to happen, to make sure that this was authentic, to make sure that this really, um, like I feel really confident that what we've created and what will be opened up um, next fall will be uh I think the community is going to see a lot of what they asked for in that process. What showed me that was working is when brick brought to us, uh, different designs, it, I don't think there was ever a point where there people were in the room were like, oh, that's not, that's not what we're talking about. It was yes. And, and so it was always that yes. And, and moving forward with things and just making adjustments from there. And it was really, it was a really fun process to be a part of. It strikes me to make it authentic the students are like giving their thoughts and then you're, those changes they're probably seeing. Right. And so they're like that feedback loop of like, okay, I'm not even having to wait till the end. I'm like seeing the plan change in real time. was probably very meaningful for them. I think it was, I was just going to say, Karina, they didn't get the pool in the hallway. Right. <laughs> Besides <laughs> that, one thing. I think we nailed it. Well, and I think that, I, I think the thing that was actually really impactful is that not only did they see the things that they wanted, but we built into the process, um, the kids themselves went out and did empathy interviews. So they went out and talked to other students, talked to, you know, custodians, um, you know, the, the cafeteria staff, and really went and did some research themselves, not just That's beyond so what cool. they wanted, and then brought that back to us. Teachers did the same thing. The administrators in the building did. I mean, there was a lot of empathy mapping, a lot of empathy work um, done. I wonder if you could share like some of the features that you sort of are excited about that kind of came from that process that might be unique. Every single thing was intentionally thought about differently. <laughs> like we don't have really a single place that is like a traditional school, right? We don't have an admin. We have a welcome center. We, our learning neighborhood doesn't consist of classrooms that are owned by the teachers, but rather um, in the case of, of Gardner, you know, really different and varied environments that are tied to the activity that that, that particular cohort of kids are doing in them at that particular point in time. So we have an instructional studio that is, um, you know, probably the most like a direct instructional space. We have a flex lab, an exploratory lab, and then two open collaboration areas. One of the, one of the barriers to changing what happens in the classroom is the classroom itself. And when, you know, I've seen other educators that have really tried to, you know, open up that box, get out there and really change things, space is typically a barrier. And uh, Karina said at the beginning, we reimagined everything. Nothing really looks like your typical school, um, you know, outside of maybe the gym. I don't know. And even that's different. I think it's also, it, it's a space that creates just by the environment itself is going to create, I think, daily learning for our educators because they are in, in a, in a positive way, they are forced to figure out how to use that space and how to teach in that space in a way that really impacts their students. And, and it also, it is going to be highly, um, reliant on collaboration. We have a full size mock-up of built out of plywood and shower curtains for where it should be like a, mo a mobile glass door. Um, and that will allow the school to use that 
um, hopefully during the next school year, we did, we, you know, intentionally put the furniture in there and said, let's test out the furniture in the space. And they will be doing professional learning for their teachers over the course of the next year in that space. Right. So we're, we are real time, um, sort of prototyping and ideating, um, in, in a real mock-up, full-scale mock-up of the learning neighborhood. Oh, that's so cool. I, if you have any photos, I'd love to see them. So kind of pivoting to what's happening right now and thinking about this fall, I'd love to hear from you, Kyle, of just what are you hearing from your community in terms of, you know, going back to school this year? I, you know, it's, it, this is hard because it's, it's one of the few, if not only times, um, that I feel like we've been faced with something where there really isn't a good answer. And so, and, and everybody has a, a different opinion and a different reason for that opinion. And a lot of times when you get down to the parent level, so I'll talk about the parents first, a lot of it has to do with just what, what is happening at home and what are their needs at home. So you, you do have some families that are, they need to go to work and they have young kids. And, and honestly, at the end of the day, they want their kids to get an education and they need somebody to watch their kids because they, they have to stay employed. Um, you have other people that are balancing working at home with their kids being at home. Uh, you have other people that, that know their kids have uh, medical conditions and, and things that put them at a higher vulnerability and want them to be safe. Um, and in some cases have the ability to be there and, and take care of them. And in other cases don't at all, uh, or don't have that family network to be able to do so, uh, or that family network is also vulnerable. Um, and so there's, there's challenges there. And we, um, and that, and that doesn't just exist, obviously, on the parent and student. That, that exists with our teachers as well, too. Um, and I know as we've surveyed in our district, those, um, their desires and needs are actually different. Um, and they're, and they're, not, they're not aligning and they're not the same. And so as we're planning things um, enabled in terms of being able to um, allow people to completely work virtually or learn virtually as a student, um, then those numbers don't line up. Uh, mm -hmm. as they stand and the desires of those to come back and, you know, either teach in person or, you know, be in person and learn once again, they, they don't line up. And so there's some challenges there. Uh, there's also just a lot of operational challenges that, um, you know, it's, I remind people it's, it's a lot more right now about when we talk about bringing people back, it's about risk mitigation, which doesn't feel really good. Um, I'd like to be able to say we can keep everybody safe, but, but we know that, the, you know, the virus is in control of that, not us. Um, and so, and then working through that risk mitigation with the operational things that you have in hand, the number of buses that you have, the structure of your buildings, you know, we have buildings that are, and I'm probably misquoting the years, uh, to a certain extent, but I think our oldest building is, is from like the 1930s. And then obviously our newest one is I think 2003, you know, so you've got a wide range in our school district of what those buildings look like, how they're set up, the size of classrooms, uh, the ventilation that, you know, how air is the HVAC systems and all that. Um, they're all very different. And so they all present some really unique challenges, uh, when you're considering the safety of your students and your staff. And, uh, we, we are not, um, actually going to start the year, um, in a hybrid or back all in school. Uh, our school board made a decision last night, um, to, uh, put that off and to go completely in a comprehensive distance learning until at least November 11th. Um, but we also, I, I think as an, as an educator, um, one of the things I appreciate about the decision that they made last night is now it gives us the ability to say, okay, we're starting in a few weeks. Uh, we know we're doing this till November 11th. 
and we can get focused in on what are those inequities we know are going to exist and how do we address them to try to uh, either eradicate them or make them better um, so that our students can have the best learning experience possible. And I think we've been in the last several weeks, months, in more of a space where there was a lot of uncertainty. It's like we're planning for three different yeah. things. Yeah. As we all know, when you plan for three <laughs> different things that are especially things that are as complicated as school, um, that that it really can kind of water down what it is that you're doing. And so it's nice to get some focus. Yeah, sure is. Yeah. You know, I just, um, I'm thinking, we have no idea, like how long this is going to last, right? And I, I'm just wondering if the new building that you're designing and building right now, is that going to um, be changed based on what we're learning and what we're going through right now, not knowing if COVID is still going to be around and something we're talking about once you do move into that space? The structure of the places aren't good, you know, where the walls are. Um, and I think we've we've been thinking about you know, increased um, HVAC air changes. So all of the things that are right to do to get better indoor air quality just also happen to align with good practices for infection control. Um, but in terms of actually where kids and teachers are going to be every day, what they're sitting on, what that looks like, that the good news is that some of that has, the decisions have yet to be made. So we've been making the decisions in the context of knowing that we're planning for both a pandemic and a post-pandemic world. Um, but, you know, I think there there is a lot of flexibility when you design for activities rather than a replication of kind of this industrial model of education, there's a lot of flexibility built into that. Um, and I think that that's going to be leveraged, um, quite frankly, quite a bit. I was having a discussion with our director of teaching and learning, Dr. Sarah DeBoy yesterday, and it was around this. I was like, I, I need to check my thinking because we're also in this world where we're totally focused on COVID right now. And the the strong feeling that I had that I was checking with her and she felt a lot of the same way is like, we're still pushing forward with what we know the world needs to be and what our kids need. And that's a very collaborative world, um, a, you know, a world where people are working together and we've designed spaces for that. And I think there's some parts of our design that lend itself um, to being a better space, you know, for for health overall uh, in, in the spring of that, because they're more open spaces. Like Karina said, they're, they're, a, a lot of what they're putting in place already aligns with, with being best practice in these areas. But what we don't want to do and, and what I see happening a little bit in response in terms of getting prepared to bring kids back prior to a vaccine is start to go backwards and start to create spaces that are more isolating, um, that are not warm and welcoming. And, you know, and I give an example of, I, I was vetting something and it's not something that we were considering, but something that's been happening of what people are doing with buses. And there's, there's literally one place that's doing, there's probably several places actually that are putting big pieces of, you know, plastic, what have you in between and creating a lot of isolation. And I can't, I, you think about, um, and you mentioned, I, I, I been a principal before and I spent part of that. Most of mine's at the high school level, but I've also been an elementary principal and thinking about the age of those kids. And I have elementary age kids myself. Like we don't want to create building designs or bus trips or anything like that, that create a sense of isolation or imprisonment or any of that stuff that I think right now people are thinking about because yeah, they're trying and they're doing there. it, they're doing it for the right reasons. They're trying to keep people safe. But we also don't want to change the culture and we don't want to shift what a school feels like. We're trying to get away from 
that factory feel of a school, that isolation that some classrooms have a feel of. And we're trying to get to places that are more, um, that fit better where the world is heading, uh, both at work and how, how people live and, and making them healthier for our students and staff that come to them. And so I just, while some of our um, internal things to keep people safe might change some of our practices, you know, whether it be hand washing or how we sanitize rooms or how often we do things like that. I see those things probably shifting and being better in the future, but I don't want us to see, start to see us start design spaces to keep people safe from a virus and not consider all the other things that are so much more important uh, when we get, when we get life back to normal. Thank you, Kyle, so much for being here. It's great to have your perspective. That was fun. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Listeners, check out our episode page for links to some of the resources we discussed. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. Now it's time for our weekly dose of good design, where we each share an example of good design that has impacted us or others in some meaningful way. This week, I will start us off. I feel like there's a trend to the ones I've been sharing over the last couple of weeks, uh, but I finally got a new desk at home. It's been four and a half months of just standing at my dresser or like sitting at the kitchen table, and it just was a terrible setup. Uh, so I got a desk from Uplift Desk, it's really cool. It has this motorized sit to stand, which my kids love. They love to press the button while I'm not looking. Uh, so you push a button and a raise and lower and you can set your favorite heights. But I think the thing that was the weekly dose of good design for me beyond the desk, it's a desk, uh, is was the ordering process. And it's just this amazing like customization. You could pretty much pick everything, colors, materials, sizes, accessories, um, and the website for like the ordering process was very simple and customer service was great. Um, I probably got way too many accessories because I was like, oh, you can get this and you can get this. But the most interesting accessory uh, is super silly and it was free. I had to put that out there. <laughs> I did not buy this, um, but it's a hammock. And so you can hang this hammock on the underside of the desk. Obviously, I have to raise it up, you know, to a particular height. And I guess, you know, if you ever want to take a nap under your desk, I'm sure my daughter is going to love the hammock once I install it. Because um, I probably won't use it, but Rafi probably will. So that's I mine. I love it. So wait, is this a Liz. hammock that's big enough for a full-size human? Full-size adult. <laughs> yep. Oh, that's that. I just, I was imagining yeah. this little tiny hammock and now I have a whole different vision. No, no. All right, you're up. Well, as you may know, Joanna Cole, the author of The Magic School Bus, uh, recently passed away, which not only made me sad because I love her books and they're a big part of my childhood, uh, but it also prompted me to reread and rediscover these incredible stories. And for me, you know, these books really exemplify how design can be used for learning and education. Joanna Cole and Bruce Deegan, the illustrator, use the design of things like Mrs. Frizzle's outfits and the magic school bus itself to teach. You know, sometimes they turn the bus into a rocket ship or a helicopter or a time machine or even, you know, a honeybee. Uh, and then, of course, they're all of Mrs. Frizzle's just completely over the top outfits. 
And uh, all of these things, you know, have just been a staple in captivating and educating kids all over the world about science uh, for the last 34 years. So and I'm sure it will continue to do so, you know, for a long time to come. But I'm just thinking of, of Joanna Cole and Bruce Deegan today and, and feeling really grateful for their creativity. Well, yeah, I saw awesome. a tweet um, this week that was like, Mrs. Frizzle deserves a raise or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> like all teachers. Sure. Oh, I love it. Yeah. That's awesome. I love it. So good. Uh, I, I, that brings me back to um to I, I read those books to my nephews and like that, they always have a warm place in my heart like mm-hmm. sitting on a couch with a baby yeah, reading absolutely. Books. So thanks yeah. for yeah. thanks for bringing that back. Mm-hmm. All right, Karina, you are up. Okay, um, so for me, I think I've I've really been in the headspace of um kind of this 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 juxtaposition of design and equity. I'm looking at a lot of resources. Um, of the design is protest um, kind of movement. One of them that really I've been focused on lately is um, it's called the Designer's Critical Alphabet. Um, it was created by um, Dr. Leslie Ann Noel um, at a Tulane. And it's a deck of cards really that um, have um, a letters. It's an alphabet. Obviously, each letter of the alphabet has a, a new theory around design thinking and how to make the connection between um, that theory of design equity and bringing it back to design practice. So um, it's just a really deep tool that you can use around resilience and self-awareness. And, you know, they ask a question and then you, it really makes you think about it. So it's one that I I keep on the coffee table right Mm. now and kind of pull them out. And um, it's some of it's hard reading, honestly, but, um, but it's good stuff. So that's, That's that's been my it's been my design inspiration lately. I love it. We all, we need those prompts. We need to keep them front and center. That's really cool. Thank you. Thank you both. Those are both really, really good ones. Thank you again to Karina Ruiz and Kyle Lair for joining us this week. As I mentioned, we'll post links to some of the things we discussed on our episode page. Design Night Live is just about a month away on September 19th. So be sure to visit designnightlive.org to learn more and get your tickets today. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you on social media. You can even share your ideas for future Design is Everywhere episodes. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at design underscore museum. On Instagram, we're at Design Museum Everywhere. And on Facebook and LinkedIn, you can find us by searching Design Museum Everywhere. And make sure to subscribe to Design is Everywhere on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. That way, we'll always be in your feed on Thursday mornings. Yeah, I mean, start your Thursday off with us. I mean, that's great. This episode was written by me, Sam Aquilano, and produced by Ryan Flom. We're edited by David Green. Thank you, David. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For Liz Pollack and the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thank you, and we'll talk again next week. Bye, everyone.